Okay, going live. Hello, Instagram. Hey, Hello. Joey. Hi, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Plum Radio. Welcome, welcome. I have a uh, I have a selfie stick tripod today, so I am, uh, <laughs> he's ready. finally finally I've caught up to my dad. Okay, hey everyone, welcome to Plum Radio. This is a weekly Instagram live show where we talk about news, pop culture, and politics from the Asian perspective. I'm your host Dolly Lee. This is my co-host Joey Yang. Hey everyone, how you doing? We are so, so excited for our guest that's coming on today. We will be having Alice Wu, the writer and director of Saving Face and the new Netflix film, The Half of It, that just came out on Friday. Um, Alice will be joining us at 4.30. She's just wrapping up another chat that she's having over at Netflix, and then she'll be coming on to here. Um, but for people who haven't seen the half of it yet, it's a coming-of-age coming story about a closeted high school teenager, Ellie Chu, who ends up falling in love with the same person as her best friend, Paul. So if you guys haven't seen that, it is all of the feels, and we'll be going deep into that story today. To do us a favor, follow us on Listen to Plum Radio and send this Instagram live to a few of your friends. Just that little arrow, that little paper plane. That little share button right here. Right there. And you can send this Instagram live to a few of your friends to make sure that they're watching in, and we'll have Alice on at 4.30. And what a blessing it is. In May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. It's going to be May. It's going to be May. We get to kick off May, our first show, with Alice Wu. And that's so amazing. Like, I can't even believe that. And Alice hasn't made a film since Saving Face. Yeah, it's been it's been since 2004 since Saving Face. And I hadn't seen Saving Face until this week. Uh, and wow. I was blown away. You know, well, I think we were, we were talking about this the other night. It was it, like, it's, it was hard. You had to go track down DVDs. This is 2004, remember? Like, you couldn't right. just find it on the internet. Um, and so I just saw it this week and man, wow, was I blown away. Uh, I want I want to get into saving face with you before uh, before we get into the rest of the show because there's so much about it that was groundbreaking in 2004 and and the thing is watching it this week it felt like you know, except for the Nokia ringtone it could have been <laughs> it would have felt just as amazing just as groundbreaking if it had come out today. Y'all send hearts if you've seen Saving Face. That Saving Face is an Asian American and queer film like cult classic. If not just pure classic, Saving Face is such a great movie. Like just like Joey said, it is groundbreaking even for today. It's so much about it. I don't know if I've ever seen another movie where it's about an Asian American family. It's about, you know, uh it's Wilhelmina who is the main character. Her mom is a widow and she is going through this struggle of coming out to her mom and her mom who's played by Joan Chen this really famous Shanghainese actress the mom has a secret of her own too and and we maybe we won't do we want to spoil it I think we're we're, we're we not should, we should tell yeah spoil. okay we maybe tell, we can tell a little, a little bit about story. saving face yeah so both women have these two secrets you know Will being she's a lesbian and she wants to tell her mom and her mom is hiding her own secret where she's actually she's prego and she won't tell the family who the baby daddy is much to the chagrin oh of uh of, of professor grandfather uh and everyone else in the family and and to hear there's so many things about this movie right and we were talking about how amazed we were at how good the mandarin dialogue is and we were mm -hmm. and 
and then we were thinking, why are we, why is that amazing? Why is that impressive? And um, I mean, there's, there's so much and just like hearing like the vicious gossip from all the aunties, yes, uh, you know, really, gossip. really took me back to a time and place, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It was, I think for me, it was the first lesbian sex scene I've ever seen, let alone an Asian lesbian sex scene. I was like, whoa, this has mm-hmm. opened my eyes and my mind in so many different ways. And yes, why, you know, thinking about the Mandarin, the Mandarin in the movie is very accurate. And it's so sad that as Asian Americans, that's what we're impressed by. We are impressed when we hear accurate sounding Mandarin. That's that's the level that we're starting at. Yeah, definitely. And it was uh, and it was part of our discussion after um, after watching the half of it, too. You know, it's like, wow, the, you know, that dialogue sounds so good. And we we're like, it, it almost sounds like suspiciously good. And then we we're like, why? Why do we even why do we even have to think like that? Like, so, nice. yeah. So, I mean, there's so many ways in which um, saving faces is, is so far ahead of its time. And, and that's why we're, we're really excited to get into the half of it with uh, with y'all a little bit later, too. Do you have a favorite scene from Saving Face? Oh boy. Um, I mean, I don't want to give away like the, the big ending, but, um, there's a, if you've, if you've seen both movies, there's a, there's a big ending scene and they kind of, kind of take place in, in similar settings. Um, and you know, there's a crowd and there's lots of gasping. Uh, and then, then that, that's like a, one of the big reveals of the movie. And I, I like my jaw hit the floor. I was so, yeah. I was so like shocked. Um, but what? yeah, it was, it was, it was a beautiful moment. Um, And another thing I love about that movie is that it is so much about Asian female power and undermining the patriarchy to get what you want, do what you want. And it's mind blowing that a film like that was even made in 2004. Like, I don't think there was a single white guy in that film. Right. I know. And, and, and we were talking about it and there's, there's only, uh, there's only a couple like white characters at all. Um, And then one of uh, Wilhelmina's best friends is black. Um, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, but for there to be like not a single white guy and, and, and the other crazy thing too, is originally the studio wanted to cast as the love interest, wait for it, Scarlett Johansson, uh, <laughs> to which our favorite Alice, Asian, no. yeah, our <laughs> Every, favorite happy, Asian friend, happy, happy uh, Asian Pacific heritage month to Scarlett Johansson out there, wherever you are, uh, <laughs> wherever you you're are celebrating with us. <laughs> But and yeah, for and, and, who, mm-hmm. and for for the movie to be talking about like saving face and just going into the whole concept of saving face, we're rejecting the patriarchy. We're rejecting this. And and in the movie, the grandfather character says like, you know, you've thrown away a lifetime of my face. And so the two mm-hmm. characters, a lot of what they're grappling with is how do they save their family's face? How do they how do they have to change the way that they live their lives to fit into other people's expectations? And finally, at the end. Um, you know, there's, there's a moment where, you know, we decide, you know, whose face are we saving? Who's responsible for saving whose face? And, and it was really cool to, to watch. Yes. Yes. It's been 15 years since saving face. And, you know, for people who have seen the half of it, it's a very different story. You know, it's not the half of it is actually a coming of age story and it's less about romance, but more about like the love between friends and like discovering yourself and finding who you are when you're young, when you're living in a town where you're, you're the only Asian family. Um, so super excited to talk to Alice about that. And before we welcome Alice on at 4.30, Joey and I have our weekly segment where we talk about our whole and blessing of the week. The whole of the week being our favorite emoji, the whole, where we put all of the disgraces and dishonors of the week in there and forget it and just put that stuff away. So, Joey, do you have a hole for us this week? 
I do have a hole for the week, so I'm trying to move my uh, camera a little bit closer so y'all can hear me a little better. Is this too close? Um, so my whole of the week this week is, um, there's a video from China, uh, where a food delivery guy is wearing a, like a mechanical exoskeleton, uh, so he can carry 110 pounds of food. And if you see this video and like this, they literally like strapped this guy into this suit and like, he's just like, kind of like waddling around and he has like these boxes and boxes of delivery bags, like stacked on his back. And I'm just like, and, you know, I think, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, you know, it's really cool. And in the future, like, you know, these are all the things that we're supposed to have. But at the same time, it makes you think all the bullshit that all of our essential workers have to go through. It's not just here. It's everywhere, right? It's everywhere where people are doing these kinds of essential jobs. And, and instead of taking care of workers, instead of making sure that um, folks who are working have, you know, basic dignities, we're just, we're just literally strapping them to robots. Uh, to try to figure out how they can do more, be better, deliver faster, all that stuff. And and that, that for me, goes in the hole. We're putting that in the hole today. Um, in the and hole. And I'm thinking about all of the, all the bullshit our essential workers are having to go through. All the folks who are striking, who struck on May 1st as part of International Workers' Day, people at Amazon, Instacart, Target, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, FedEx, all striking and working um, to for, for really just basic dignities. And, and that... That actually brings us really nicely to our to our blessing of the week. So, uh, Dolly, <laughs> will you give us a blessing for this week? Yeah, for sure. Like whole of the week, definitely exploitation of essential workers that has got to go. And so much love and appreciation for the people who are still delivering our food and bringing us groceries, especially to people who are just chilling at home or like can't be able, can't go to the grocery stores themselves. Like such essential people in our society. And our blessing for this week to counter the exploitation that is out there, we are honoring all of the workers around the world who are fighting for their rights, fighting for the labor movement, fighting for their own benefits, fighting for health. So we honored this with remembering that the Asian American movements, the labor movements that have come together to actually advocate for better work standards for our communities, including the 1982 Chinatown Garment Factory strike. Now, some of you guys might have seen this on our Instagram. We put up some old photos from this 1982 strike where over 20,000 women who worked in the Chinatown garment factories here in New York were advocating for better work, uh, working conditions, were advocating for their union rights against the contractors and the factory owners who are trying to take, take away their holidays and take away their benefits. So something to remember, you know, that our history of immigrating to this country coming from a place of poverty is that we've been fighting for workers' rights, for better rights for a really long time. And, you know, as Asian Americans are becoming a more privileged people in American society, I think it's really important to remember that we come from a place where we've been advocating for underdogs, for ourselves, for underserved communities for a long time. And that is something we need to keep with us. Absolutely. So blessings. So for folks who are and for folks that are striking, I mean, they're really just asking for basic things: sick leave, masks and gloves, two dollars an hour hazard pay. You know, it's it's really not a lot. So at the at today uh, at the beginning of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, uh, we are honored to be standing in solidarity with all the folks who are on strike. We ask you not to cr- cross the picket line for uh, those places. Don't support these businesses until they're treating folks with a bare minimum of dignity and respect. So. That's uh that's it for for that segment. Uh, it's a little bit past 4:20 here on the East Coast, so <laughs> we are going to do our 
our incense we'll lighting. We'll do our no, little incense lighting. Bless this is the for show. you guys to bless the show so we can welcome Alice on at 4.30. <laughs> so, you know, as they say, for you all. light them if you got them. Uh, and light and while we're doing that, him. we've Now's got a, a really special announcement for everyone. Uh, today, we're launching our Patreon, and that means that you can finally support Plum Radio and subscribe to us. Uh, it's a really, really huge moment for us. Dolly and I have been scheming on Plum Radio for a while. This is our first step towards all the things that we know we can do. Uh, we want to be a really different kind of publication. And maybe Dolly, you can tell us a little bit about why. Yes. And, you know, part of dreaming of Plum Radio is so informed by my own experience as a journalist. Uh, I know some of you guys might know my work, some of you may not, but I've been covering the Asian and Asian American diaspora communities for a long time, especially through documentary work. And for as many videos as I've put out, it's been a fight for every single one to cover stories in the way that I believe that they need to be covered. And that is with nuance, with humanity, and with culture in mind. So it's not that easy to convince mainstream media to cover our stories, to talk about our community in a way that does not exoticize us or views us as a freak show. And it's been long overdue for us to have a media publication, to have a platform in which our stories can be told and it doesn't need to be a fight. And that is why Plum Radio has been our dream for so long. We want a place where all of these stories can be held. And it's not just about Plum Radio, this, this one show. It's about expanding the shows. It's about doing more short documentaries, covering more communities, expanding this voice and platform and creating more space for Asian American stories, Asian narratives and Asian voices without having to justify to mainstream media that this matters because we know it matters. So that's why I'm so excited that we finally get to announce our Patreon today. Guys, please send hearts if you've been following along Plum Radio. Uh, Patreon, for people who don't know about it, it's a subscriber-based model, and it it starts at just $5 a month, and you can support us in our future endeavors and what we want to create. Um, and there are a lot of bonuses that come with being a subscriber. Like Just last week, Joey and I hosted a viewing party for the half of it. Over 20 people tuned in, and we were able to share in you know, unpacking the film and discussing with our community, our plum posse, and this is everyone from like Asians to non-Asians, queer folks, non-binary folks, hearing from all the different perspectives of why this film matters to us, right? Everything from the language to seeing a young queer Asian to talking about what it's like to be the one Asian person growing up in a really white town. So this is the community we want to create. It's more than just our stories. It's about having a place where we can share in these issues and discuss and unpack them. Absolutely. So our supporters on Patreon get access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes, uh, invites to Q&As, virtual screenings where we can have stuff like this. Um, on Friday night, we talked for an hour and a half after the show. We went until midnight on the East Coast, just talking, trying to unpack it, talking about the characters, sharing our stories. You know, $5 a month, this show can be totally, totally, fully supported by viewers just like you. Uh, so after the show's over, go ahead, find us on Listen to Plum Radio, hit the link in our bio, patreon.com slash plum radio. Uh, we're always going to remember our day one supporters and day one is today for us. So uh, we really appreciate the support. Absolutely. And thank you guys for the love that you're sending. Appreciate you guys so much for people who have been following my work for all these years. I think that it's time that we take ownership of our narrative and define what our humanity looks like. So support Plum Radio. Thank you guys for tuning in. 
we will be joined by Alice Wu in just a few minutes, and she will be share, talking to right us now, about her new Netflix film, The Half of It. It's 4.30. It is the hour. So we'll and check in on Alice and Joey. We'll see you next week. All right. See y'all next week. Take care, everyone. Bye, Joey. Bye. Hey, Dolly. Hi, Alice. Hi. How are you? I'm good. So, so excited to see you. I know. I'm still trying. This is a brand new thing for me, this Instagram live <laughs> thing. I'm, because usually I just do it on my computer. So this phone thing is weird. But hi. You look great. You sound great. Everyone, please welcome Alice with lots of hearts and forward this Instagram live to as many of your friends as possible so we can swarm Alice with our laugh. <laughs> wow, that, that sounds a little scary, but thank you. <laughs> Alice, I have so many people who are watching right now who are huge fans of yours. I have one of my best girlfriends who went to Wellesley and you gave a talk at Wellesley in 2010. Oh, yeah. She was there. I actually oh. have another friend who was one of your improv students in San Francisco and he's watching as well. Oh, that's so many, great. Many oh, I fans. love my students. Yes. Yeah. So congratulations. Congratulations on your new film. And I know it's finally out. It's just been a few days. I know we've been on the press circuit. How are you feeling? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I know we tried to talk yesterday and I was unbelievably wiped out because I think not that it's done. I still have another few weeks of like things to do, but there is this crescendo to, you know, I would say there's like that moment before people see the film. And then there's that moment when the film is released mm -hmm. in the world. And the moment the film goes into the world, I feel like um, it kind of is no longer mine. It like becomes you know, or ours, like mine and my teams, it kind of becomes everyone's, right? And so it's fascinating because like my hope is that it affects the cultural conversation. Like, you know, for me, the biggest thing is hoping it'll affect the cultural conversation. Mm -hmm. So now it's like the sitting back and listening to what the conversation is and seeing. Um, and it's been incredible. And I'm not like a big crier, but it really <laughs> was like Friday night. I think it just all came to a head and like yesterday, um, I've, I've been really, so to be totally honest with you, I just have felt like bursting into tears, which is a weird thing in this time of mm -hmm. like COVID and, and the pandemic where we're all sheltering in place. Because what I really want is to like hug people, right? Like you really want to like, people write me these things. Like I have so many, I'm not a big social media person until very recently because of the film, but I get all these DMs on Instagram and on um, Twitter and I don't have time now to respond to them all, but there are these heartfelt like stories. And I do want everyone to know, I do read everything. Like it might take up, but I, so I won't be able to respond, but I don't want you to think I haven't read it. Um, and it does, uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's very moving, I guess, that yeah. um, so many different kinds of people feel like they've, they've, you know, feel that they've feel heard in some way, I guess. I think part of it is also like the specificity of your films, especially as Asian American viewers, right? Like something about the half of it that really resonated, for example, is how Ellie is talking about her dad's accent and how she needs to help him with taking care of his bills. And that's something that I know for myself is an experience I grew up with with my parents who don't speak English. Mm. And I, I'm curious to hear, you know, how much of Ellie's existence and experience as this incredibly mature teenager is something that you went through. 
Yeah, I think it's a very common immigrant experience. Uh, and I, I actually do honestly feel like immigrant stories are in some ways the most American stories you can tell, right? Because our country is more or less pretty much everyone maybe it's not one generation, maybe it's two generations, but most people have some experience with feeling like they've had to travel with their family, whether it's in the country or from another country here. And I know for me, uh, my parents are young immigrants uh, when they moved here. I was technically born here, but we only spoke Mandarin at home. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I went to school that I learned English. And my parents, talk, like their English is actually very good. Uh, but you know, obviously they were they were learning English as I was, you know, growing up, and um, it it it's one of those things that you you probably pick up as a young person that even though my parents' English was actually like excellent, they absolutely could communicate. We don't necessarily live in a country that is that forgiving of specific kinds of accents like unless it's british or it's like a sexy french <laughs> accent right like more no or less says sexy chinese accent <laughs> yeah exactly exactly they should but they do not and so i think um that's something you just pick up that's like that's you know and and i think but it's not you know it, it's so much a part of one's life that the other thing i tend to do both with being I guess both with like the casual racism that I encounter or the casual homophobia that I might encounter in my life, it becomes something that's so, you so expect it that it's not like every time it happens, it's this like deep mm -hmm. trauma, right? And I'm not saying that's okay. I am saying though, that I tend to write characters that then go about their day focused on the kind of things that almost everybody focuses on, which is, you know, how do I get up in the morning? What do I have to do for work? What does, you know, like all the basic sort of very human activities with these other like layers seated in, you know? And I, and I think part of the reason is it, it just feels more real to me. Um, I, I don't, I, if every time I experience casual, whatever homophobia or casual racism, I had to have a moment, I would literally get nothing done. Right, so it's right. like, you know, and I think that's true for most people. So I, I think we, you develop kind of a, a and, and I think that's something that comes out in both my films as well. Absolutely. And, you know, something that ties together, I think both your films, I didn't notice this the first time I watched it. The second time I saw it, it's Joan Chen who's in Ellie Chu's suitcase. That's a photo of Joan, isn't it? And in the very beginning, that's her mom. Like in the very beginning, you go up and out the altar. Joan is one of my closest friends. Um, and she let me have that photo, those photos. She just sent me a bunch of photos. Cause wow. I was like, hey, would you let me? Cause I, it was like an Easter egg for yes. my saving face. So it's like, like we don't put it in the credits. It's literally an Easter egg for my saving face friends. And um, the uh, and she sent me a ton of like gorgeous photos, and I chose those. Um, yeah, my she's mom an loves amazing. Joan Chen. When she first saw her in your film, she was like, "Oh my god, I know her!" She's a very famous Shanghainese actress. Yeah, so Joan is an incredible actor of oh so many. Like you know, I was she was incredible. Like I I feel like she was incredible in Saving Face, but she's also incredible in so many films. And going from, you know, saving face, this mother-daughter dynamic to now seeing the half of it where it's a father-daughter dynamic. I mm -hmm. love seeing that contrast. And I'm curious to hear how much of that is similar to your own dynamic with your dad, especially the Yakult, the Tweety Bird shirt, yeah. the robe. 
Yep, the Tweety Bird shirt is exactly. So here's the funny thing. Like, obviously, like my dad is not like a depressed widower, but I think where it's very similar is my dad and I did not develop a relationship with words so much. Like my dad was, it's just by nature, uh, he's like a thinker, right? And so a lot of times the way we would connect is we would just sit there and we would eat food and watch something together. Um, like we'd eat a gigantic tub of like, each of us would have a tub of like mango ice cream, or <laughs> we actually genuinely did eat Swanson chicken pies. Like, I don't know why that was like something I, we both loved growing up. Um, a lot of Swanson TV dinners for, for uh, I don't know, it just seemed like a, maybe it was an easy thing. If my mom wasn't around to cook, then that's what we did. Um, but where, again, we're very similar. It's like neither of my parents, and I think this is very common in Chinese culture and probably in other Asian American cultures is, or Asian cultures, we don't say the words, I love you between parent and child. Um, that in Mandarin would be more reserved for like a lover, right? What we do is we just do things for each other. So like there's that big moment when the dad is making dumplings for her and basically telling her that she wants her to, you know, Basically, he's saying, I want you to have your life. I'm going to sacrifice my own fears of losing you um, because I want this for you. He doesn't say, you know, child, I love you. I've thought about it. Here's what it is. Like he does it in this like really just, I think, devastatingly quiet and beautiful way that is so heartwarming. Um, like it's one of my favorite scenes and just the way the two, those two actors play that scene feels so true to me as to how my dad and I talk. Um, and then yes, the Tweety Bird shirt is my dad literally, like when he goes out into the world, he's very like buttoned up, very like, you know, looks very presentable, but at home, he literally wears two sweatshirts and one has a big Tweety Bird and one has a big Tasmanian devil. And they're both, <laughs> despite the fact that they must be like 20 years old, they both look perfectly new. Like he keeps things so neat. I don't know how he does it, but they look totally like, and so, yeah, I told my costume designer, I want, try and get the rights to like the Tweety Bird. Cause my dad also, He's actually a very sweet man, but he, he looks angry all the time. <laughs> like he just doesn't smile. He just like, and so there's something about that serious face with the Tweety Bird that always makes me laugh. And so that's the, yeah. Yeah. That's something I really wanted to see in, in, in uh, the dad character that Colin Chow plays. Yeah, and he really embodied that so well. And you know, we actually hosted a viewing, a digital viewing party of the half of it. With we had over twenty people who were, you know, watching it together, and we were discussing the film. And one question that came up was that everyone was very curious about the casting. You know, did you cast for very specific characters that you had already written, or did you find certain actors who were like, oh, I can rewrite this to their demeanor? Oh, no, I'm very much a stickler. It's funny because despite doing improv, right? Like I do improv and I teach improv. But when it comes to film, my own writing, I'm a huge stickler for <laughs> like I've written it. This is what it is. Um, and I don't. I am not someone who's like, let's improv the word. Like, no, I, to the point where I'm like, don't even add an additional um. I don't want to add additional, <laughs> you know, because I do think of actors sometimes they will, if, if the line is that hard to say, then I have not written a good line, right? Mm. But generally, I think sometimes when people are about to feel an emotion, if they start to like, you know, it's like a way to take, it, it bleeds the emotion out. So I'm like, nope, that discomfort you're feeling is right for this moment. I want it to come through. Like you want, you want people to be 
like feeling what's really happening. And some of the feelings that are happening are not comfortable, right? But if they, if it's real for them in that moment, it translates on the screen in a way that we then feel it, right? Uh, so no, I very much was like, these are the lines. And then I very specifically look for the people who I think are gonna be able to get there. That doesn't mean that like, you know, like Leah Lewis is completely different than Ellie. Like her mm -hmm. instincts are completely different in real life, right? But what I saw in Leah was a very smart actor. And I saw just a, there's just, I, I can't explain it. And it's not quantifiable or qual, I, it's not qualifiable. It's like where I don't, there's like a chemistry that just happens, mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, between directors and actors. And you're basically looking for, like, I just looked at Leah and there was something about her. I'm like, this person's very interesting to watch. Her instincts, her initial are off. But if I give her, if we talk about the character, she's really good at taking what I've said and then translating it in a way that like works. So like, she, I just knew it's like, oh, we can communicate, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's a little bit of a leap of faith after that, right? Like you want it because it's building the character like where it's like in working together, she starts to strip away the layers of all the things that maybe are Leah to get to what is Ellie inside her, which I think, again, Leah does such a beautiful job. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. And her voice, it's it's amazing. It actually, it reminds me a lot of yours. I love oh. her, her deep voice and it's so god i only character. wish my voice sounded that good <laughs> her voice is amazing it is true i think i like low voices alexis who plays aster also has a low voice and i didn't notice it till someone pointed it out to me mm -hmm. it's like do you just like low voices <laughs> and i'm like i think i do actually yeah you have a good low voice <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> In your director's note, you said that this movie actually didn't start out as a movie about teens. So how did that transition happen? You know, it's so funny. I, I, I think for years, um, I think I tend to write from a very personal place um, and for my own stuff. Obviously, if it's a work for hire. That's different. Right. But for my own stuff. And I... I would say that probably up until I was like 30, I had totally bought into this idea that the most important thing in one's life is to find like your perfect romantic partner, right? Like I think all the stories I read on, you know, Victorian novels, all the movies, all the TV shows, like there's just always this sort of arc of finding your one. And as I've gotten older, one thing I notice is that like, even when that does happen, or like, I'll look at all my friends, even when they found someone who's wonderful for them, right? That it's not like, and then their life ends. It's just like a crescendo of greatness and then nothing bad. Ha it's like, you know, that happens and then their life continues and then there's more to life, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that might've started me thinking about, that's so interesting that I've really bought into this idea where we exalt romantic love. But if I'm really honest, a lot of the like bigger heartbreaks in my life were not romantic relationships. Like in a lot of ways, saving face stems out of the heartbreak of like a mother and daughter, right? Who don't know how to communicate despite loving each other more than anything, right? Like I wrote saving face for my mom. And I was thinking about like how for me, like there's just been a couple of, like there've been a lot of friendships that are really formative in my life, more so than probably romantic relationships. And most of them I still have, but there's always like those couple that for whatever reasons, due to circumstance, 
they maybe you're not able to stay connected. And in particular, uh, when I came out as a senior in college um, to myself, uh, it was a time like I, I just turned 50. So back oh, in like happy birthday. Thank you. you. Thank Aries, you. Taurus, 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 Aries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Yeah. No, I literally just a few days ago turned uh, 50. The uh, uh, And so that why I say that is to give context to the fact that this was like in the early 90s now, right? When I'm trying to figure out, which is not a time when it felt maybe there was not as many representations of queer culture. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even really know anyone who was gay. And my best friend at the time was this like straight white guy who was not at all someone I, when I met, I think I, this is someone I'd be best friends with. But I think sometimes you'll meet someone and for reasons you don't understand, you both just get each other's humor. Like you just get yeah. each other. And that was, you know, like, you know, that was this guy and he really helped me more than anyone become comfortable with myself as gay. Uh, I think because he just treated me no differently. Like the connect, like our connection as people was just there. And it was very simple between us. But I, I think it can be a little hard in society. I think when they see like, well, here's, you know, here's a girl, here's a boy. They really like each other. They should just date, right? Like I think mm -hmm. there's some way. Um, and I think it just became more complicated. Like when he was like together in a relationship, there'd just be like, a difficulty and and in hindsight i i realized like i think he was alluding to it there's something it's not about because i'm like look we would never neither of us want to have sex with each other why is this an issue but there's mm -hmm. something about the intimacy that i think can make it challenging for other partners right and now that i've gotten older i've been on all sides of that equation so i have much more empathy about it where I've been, you know, I've been the person who, like, my partner has someone that they're so close to, and I'm a little jealous, and I don't want to be, but I do am, yeah, right? I've been, you know, the person stuck in the middle. And so there's a way that I've thought about writing about love from the lens of, like, a lesbian straight guy friendship because it's kind of an interesting you know, like it, it, it can so easily sort of shorthand-wise, like everyone sees, like, well, yeah, it is kind of, Weird. Like if this person could not possibly want to be with this person, what what is that love, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was gonna write about that, and that's supposed to be twenty somethings figuring out love, and maybe I was just too close to it, but I couldn't figure out how to make that a movie, because in a movie you basically have like a hundred minutes to like get to an ending that, and I wanted an ending that felt authentic and earned, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is one of those things that like. I think sometimes your brain, I was like literally on a plane one day and I was like, you know, I should just set the story in high school because in high school, everything is heightened, right? Like mm -hmm. every feeling is like, this is like, like you just think everything is like the last time you're going to have this feeling. So everything feels like huge. Like I love that person. It's them or death, right? right. Like it's sort of, <laughs> yeah, there's no sort of like, well, you never know. So and then when I start thinking about that, then the story took on its own thing. Cause when I think about myself in high school, I was so, I wasn't out to myself, but I had a crush on the same girl all three years. And I think that's when I started thinking about like, what would it feel like to, to woo somebody in an incredibly safe way? Like through the Sereno device, mm -hmm. like you could literally connect with somebody 
in the like that would have felt really delicious if I could have pulled that off, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that piece is almost wish fulfillment. So that's what led us to, you know, that then that's how the half of it came about. I love all of the incredible intimacy of the film without actually that much physical touching. Like one of yeah. my favorite parts is actually when Aster takes Ellie to the hot springs and it is literally mm-hmm. the steamiest, steamiest <laughs> scene without any of the sexual steaminess, but that mm-hmm. you can totally feel their chemistry and their vibe. And I love the way that you treated that and handled that. And I don't know if you've knew of this space or found this space, you know, one of yeah. the questions that came up during our viewing party was, you know, why this town was Squamish and why set it in a fictional place? Yeah. Well, first, it's uh, there's two ways to answer or two parts of that question. One is why a small rural town, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that has to do with um, I started writing the script in earnest after Trump had been elected. And the storyline could easily be like a big, broad sort of like it's a you know, it's in a big high school in New Jersey or in the OC. Mm-hmm. And it's like, girl helps guy get girl that she likes. And it could be like an all-star cast and like very fast and fun, like a bring it on kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. great movie, but not the movie that I wanted to make. Um, and I think after Trump got elected, uh, I like pretty much everyone I, I personally knew um, was really devastated. Um, I, I think it, it, it uh, and it caused me to question I think just unconsciously, maybe because every year that I got older, it did feel like, oh, it's easier to be queer somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just in the course of my life, but it felt like, oh, there are more images. Oh, it's easier to be Asian American. There seems to be more and more of an Asian American, you know, presence and voice in the media, right? And so I sort of bought into this idea that our country was like progressing, Right. And it wasn't that I thought, oh, we don't have sexism anymore. We don't have racism anymore or xenophobia. It was that I thought, well, we're getting so much more sophisticated at talking about it because we all understand that these things are bad and we all understand that we should work on them. Right. Because I still say that, like, I still have sexist and racist and homophobic and xenophobic attitudes. And I'm an old Asian dyke. Right. It's like (laughs) unconscious. Right. It's like every now and then, like, hopefully I've worked on it so much that mostly not. But every now and then something pops up and I'm like, what was that? Right. 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 So because of that, I was like, well, here we are, you know, we're all working on it. Trump gets elected and it suddenly seems like, wait, whole sections of the country, you know, and Aziz and and Sari talked about this, where it's like whole sections of the country are like, yeah, we don't never want to work on that. (laughs) That's like Mm -hmm. that we don't actually hold that as a value. Right. And that caught me so off guard because I was like, wait, what? And and because of that, like it was literally six months of my not writing and being so consumed by this. And then finally just realizing like, okay, I, I think I'm a little bit, my faith in humanity was feeling a little shaky because I fundamentally, I, I, I do, like maybe I just want to believe it, but I believe that people are fundamentally good. You know, that most people, certainly I believe we're born good, uh, but that most people given the resources would choose to do the decent thing. Um, and I guess, you know, the thought that therefore large parts of the country were just like, are these bad people was really just like, I just could not wrap my head around that. And and that's when I started thinking about like, well, if I'm super honest, when I grew up, I grew up in this tiny 
I mean, it's not tiny, sorry, I do have a tiny family, but I, I grew up in a very conservative Chinese family and they're new immigrants, right? And, and the reality was that they were aware of it, but of course there are all sorts of like sexist and racist and, you know, homophobic attitudes that were, and like, do I think my parents are bad people? Like, I don't, I, I think they're actually genuinely such good people. So it made me think that is possible then, right? Like it's possible to really have those unquestioned attitudes and be a good person and also feel like those attitudes seem right. <laughs> you know, like there's right, like some right. way that, right? We'd like you to have arguments where our parents would be like, but for them as immigrants, it's like self-preservation too, mm -hmm. but still the attitudes are there. And now they've come so far, like they're not, you know, they've come so, so far, but still seeing that gave me this level of like, well, I, I want to maybe set this in a small rural town because there's a way that I wanted to like, I, I just felt like more of an empathy for it where I'm like, that's kind of not unlike how I grew up. But so what if I, you know, set this there in the hopes that this might then reach, it might like, you know, I told you like secretly, I want to affect the cultural conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I want queers to see this. I want Asian Americans to see this, but I also really want like some conservative kid or parent or person to see this on Netflix, click on it, start to get drawn in by the characters, mm -hmm. feel like, oh, this feels like the town I grew up in, or this feels like, you know, and hopefully by the end, Maybe it just makes them think a little bit about that one immigrant family in town, which for whatever yes. reasons, there's always one. <laughs> then there's, yes, yes. you know, or that one kid who maybe is it. So that's that's why a small rural town. And then why Squamish is just, I lived in Washington state. So I know that Eastern Washington's conservative, but I also knew it wasn't like the South, which I, I just wasn't prepared. Like then I'd have to deal with black white race relations and I'm not, I wasn't prepared to like, saddle that onto this film. It just seemed like a lot to, to, um, and I knew Eastern Washington would, would work. And then I made up the name Squamish because I also know my, all my twenties living in Seattle's anytime they shot something that's supposed to be in Seattle, if it's even slightly off, everyone in Seattle goes apeshit. <laughs> They're all like, that's not right. And I'm like, I cannot set this in a real town because everyone, A, we can't afford to shoot in that town, I'm right, sure. Right, right. And B, everyone in that town's gonna be like, that's not where that's, and then it's just gonna turn. And so I'm like, I'm just gonna save myself by coming up with a date that said, yeah. yeah. So that's why. I love that. And all of the little ways in which you include how their family is different without it being so overt, right? It's not like, Ellie is overtly being attacked for being Chinese, but you know, the teasing of, you know, her last name, or, you know, this is something I'm very familiar with being like, it's her Chinese friend. It's everyone's Chinese friend, right? Yeah. Ellie is everyone's Chinese friend. Yeah. And those are yeah. the little subtleties that constantly remind you that you are the different person in a different place. Yes. Yes. This kind of goes to a motif that I noticed throughout your film that I wanted to unpack with you, which is um, the motif of hell. And it starts with mm -hmm. uh, Ellie's teacher writing hell is other people mm -hmm. on the chalkboard, right? And mm -hmm. I really want to see from your perspective, you know, I have my own interpretation of it as well, but I want to understand from your writing, you know, how you wanted to thread hell and especially this philosopher's concept of hell throughout the movie. Yeah, oh, what a great question. Um, so there's what's on the page and then there's what you show on screen, right? So certainly on the page, I was playing initially with these quotes. I mean, here's this girl 
like she doesn't really know what her her own definition of say love or life really is like she's just she's writing papers for other people but she's constantly using like other philosophers and like she's always quoting somebody else and and yeah to talk about love or to talk about humanity right and her arc is by the end she finally quotes herself like this is a girl who mm -hmm. finally figures out how to define love however inelegantly for herself right and so the whole hell is other people a i just it's a hilarious quote to me and yeah. i regularly <laughs> think that to myself when something about the world is irritating me but the uh uh but B, I just also struck me as because no exit is so funny to me as a prototype for the mm -hmm. film, given that's a very, so these three, like, yeah. you know, like I'm doing a lot of like fun callbacks between like Ellie, Paul and um, Aster. But also I just loved like Paul's, and like it sounds, he like he's not wrong when he's just like, I don't get it, a door opens when these three people are trapped in hell and they don't leave, like why not, right? right. And I super love that because it's like, for me, it is this sort of moment of like, what is existentialism? Like what, like this, like this, like, are you right, navel gazing? Right. What is happening? None of this makes sense. <laughs> and I, so I sort of want to play with like, there's like Ellie, who by the way, like she, her bedroom's in the attic, right? So this is another mm -hmm. one, what's, what's in the film. So it's like, let's put her bedroom in the attic. It's like, she's above everything. And also when she's playing the organ, she's above everyone. Right. And it's like, she's never part of them. She's just like, you know, there mm -hmm. hovering. Meanwhile, Paul's bedroom, when we find finally see him, is in the basement. And it, again, establishes both their outsider status, even in their own family, right? Mm -hmm. But the... Uh, but I am playing with like a heaven hell motif then. Like it's sort of, it's visceral, but it's just the sense of like, you know, Ellie imagining what she thinks she wants. You know, Paul, you know, literally it's just like you see Paul's whole family and you see that like he's like the forgotten kid, even though he's not even right. the youngest kid. Right, like um, that dinner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so I am playing with all those things. Um, but then like the real hell for us actually does come like when Paul says that thing that where he just breaks our heart after we've like spent the whole film falling in love with him and then he yes. says that thing that breaks our heart about sin and then literally the three of them are in hell but they're all surrounded by mm -hmm. other people right mm -hmm. uh, but they're not surrounded by each other and I really want to play that like you know there's you know obviously there's Paul literally the whole school loves him right now and he's so miserable mm -hmm. um and you see Aster and it's like there she is back and then she's miserable and you just see Ellie like well, like completely a zombie next to the only two people she had at the beginning of the film which is Mrs. G and her dad and it's that sense of like yeah, we are, we do are like we do create our own hell because of our inability to figure out how to connect with each other. If that Absolutely. so that's sort of the yeah, that's kind of the way to realize that. I think there's so many layers to the concept of hell, you know, Ellie being I think the only character who explicitly says she doesn't believe in God. And then thinking about hell for her father as well, you know, who has a PhD, is an engineer, shows up in America and is crippled by his accent. Mm -hmm and is in this own hell of having to manage the train station and seeing him evolving character from eating the pies mm -hmm. to then you know making his own food and then removing the Tweety Bird and the robe to finally put on the <laughs> suit by the end of the movie. I thought that was such a beautiful way of threading that existence throughout the film. Oh, so thank I you so much. That. That, I thought that was so incredibly thoughtful and well-written. 
Thank you. And Colin Chow, who plays the dad. I mean, here's the other thing. Not only is he a PhD and he's also well-spoken and he understands, watches like, you know, Wings of Desire, but also he's super handsome. Yes, and that was yes, very so specific. <laughs> it's so funny because initially the casting director sent me, like initially he'd send me a list and literally it'd be all these people who look a little bit like Mr. Miyagi. And I'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> First of all, 45 to 50 year old Asian American men don't look that old. They're, right. you know, but... But secondly, I really wanted someone who was handsome because then you, it's just it's just a poignance. Like you literally yeah. look at this guy and you're like, if he had stayed in his home country, he'd be a superstar. It's you even know, more painful. Yes. Now. Yeah. But then here he is. And it's it's like it's both the external pressure, but it's also his own internal pressure, like his fears of pushing against it. And he's dealing with crippling grief. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to watch that person kind of emerge. I, I don't know. I, it's that that bother storyline, which I think Colin Chow does just a beautiful job of realizing for us, um, just kills me. Something that came out from our viewing party is a question of whether the dad knew or suspected that Ellie was gay. And I was wondering uh, for you, you know, if, are you comfortable answering that? Yeah, I totally am. I actually do have a very specific answer for that. I don't think the dad thinks that her, I think the dad sees Ellie as a 13 year old, you know, and I think this is very, like, I don't think the dad is thinking about Ellie dating anybody, boys <laughs> or girls, which evidenced by like, literally when she's checking things off in the very beginning, the first time you see our hero in space, right? There's all these things she's checking out. Mm-hmm. The last thing she's checking off says stay away from boys, right? <laughs> like, yeah. So, I mean, it's subtle, it's quick, and I'm not yeah. expecting people to catch that, but it's it's for the actor. Like, I don't think, you know, the the, the I don't think the dad is, like to the dad, he's lost the love of his life until he's not going to lose the other more precious love of his life, which is his daughter. Mm-hmm. And to him, she's 13, you know, right. and I think it takes it takes him seeing how miserable she is that he then makes this next step where she's like, he's like, she must have been in love with that big lunkhead. <laughs> you, know? you know, like that's why he's like, did you guys break up? Like there's that, like, which I could totally have imagined my dad have going through that process. Cause I don't think my dad was that sensitive to interpersonal. Like, I don't think he'd be like, my mom would be immediately clear, but I think my dad would not be clear on like, wait, this person likes that. Wait, what, when did this happen? You know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's not untrue for a lot of fathers and certainly for a lot of Asian fathers. Right. So he was like, I think, I mean, I think the dad is thinking like maybe that, uh, and then I think beyond that, I do personally think like, I don't think the dad is then thinking, Oh, maybe my daughter's gay. But I think the dad, I, I do believe that when someone really loves you and you're really connected, I don't think you might be conscious of it, but I think somewhere you're maybe subconsciously aware that there's something. So at the point they finally tell you, I think there's a part of you that goes, oh, like maybe you'd never thought about it yourself, but it, you, it's suddenly like, that makes sense. I don't think the dad's gotten there yet because the story isn't. Like there's no particular need for Ellie to suddenly be like, by the way, dad, also, I mm-hmm. like this girl, but I'm not gonna be with this girl. I'm gonna li-. like, I don't think we ever do. Honestly, none of us, I don't know, maybe other people do, but I would never have a conversation with my parents that even slightly veered toward the notion of sex if I did not have to, <laughs> right? Like right, who's right, gonna right. do that? So it would have to be like, I have a girlfriend, I want you to meet her, like which didn't doesn't happen in this story. But I think we see the hope and the possibilities of what's gonna happen for Ellie when she goes, into the world now that she's starting to own who she is. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Alice, unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of the show. And I wish we could just keep talking forever. There's so much about this film that every time I watch it, I get more and more out of it. And everything oh, wow. from you. you know the language and the connection back to Saving Face of the parents speaking at certain moments to certain friends in Mandarin and the meaning of that and how valuable that is. You know, we all loved when we were watching the film, how accurate the Mandarin was, which is like, why, why do we have to appreciate this? Like, why are we <laughs> stunned by the accuracy of it? You know, these are the things that blow our minds, but yeah. here we are, you, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you would not believe how hard I have to fight for those things. So I'm like, no, we're going to drill till we get it there because otherwise it's just not believable. Absolutely <laughs> so I'm right, glad right. that, yeah, it's just a mo- even if you don't understand Mandarin, I think you do understand sort of false I don't know how to explain it, but if somebody isn't uh, is uncomfortable saying something and they're not sure what it is, I think we feel that. So I think it needs to be like there's got to be a layer where the words sort of become you, you know. And so, you know, to kind of end our conversation, I wanted to ask you for some words of wisdom, especially for (laughs) 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 the best part Uh, for other Asian Americans who are either, you know, thinking about how to embrace their real identity, be it being creative, be it, you know, coming out to their family. How do you bring yourself to, you know, step up to the plate and take ownership of who you are? Oh, gosh, I okay. I think, I guess it's this, everybody has a different series of circumstances, right? So I would never judge anybody on like, God knows I took a really long time to come out to myself and I took a really long time to think about becoming a filmmaker. Um, And so I think everyone needs to kind of like everyone's on their path right now. That said, I know for me on, cause I'm quite practical. I, like I've been financially self-sustaining since I was 18. And so I know I can't go into debt, like debt terrifies me. And and I'm saying this because I literally think that if you are thinking about making a big change, whether it's like to become a filmmaker or, you know, or you want to come out as gay, but you're worried you'll get disowned or whatever it is, I think then one of the first things you potentially could do is just make sure that you finance, like you financially are, are, able to take care of yourself. And I know that sounds so crazy practical, but I actually genuinely think that helps um, because then like for me, I don't do anything film wise unless I love it because I don't have to for the money. Um, I do things purely out of the joy of doing them. Right. And I think that that gives me a kind of courage. Um, and so, so there's that. And then I guess the, the second thing is I don't think I think I I think if someone said to me, do you just want to be a filmmaker or do you want to be an artist or a writer? I think I would have a very hard time giving up like a comfortable job to just go do that without the actual thing that like. And so if 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 someone is able to do that, I think that's great. If you're beating yourself up because you're like, I feel like I'm not able to. Then the next thing to maybe look at is, well, if you were that thing. What is it that you would be doing? Like, is there a project or that you really love, right? And then either hone your skills to get to that or, you know, take classes, whatever, you know, like, cause one day you're gonna suddenly feel something so strongly that it will give you the courage, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And to not feel like either you're going to love the thing you're doing, like just the feeling of doing it so much that then that's going to drive you, or you're literally going to come up with a project to be like, I have to make this thing. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much. Congratulations again on the half of it. And for everyone watching, we are Listen to Plum Radio. You can follow us on Instagram. Our interview with Alice will be up as a podcast on Wednesday. And so make sure you listen in, share with your friends. And Alice, thank you so much for sharing your Sunday with us. No, thank you, Dolly. This was amazing. Excellent thank voice, you. by the way. All right. <laughs> Same to you. All right. All right. I Take will, care. I, bye. Bye. Everyone, thank you for tuning in to listen to Plum Radio. This is Dolly Lee, and we will be posting this episode up as a podcast with Alice Wu. And if you guys heard us earlier, we just launched our Patreon. So if you love interviews like these and supporting Asian and Asian American filmmakers and creators, make sure you follow us and support us at patreon.com slash Plum Radio. Thank you, everyone. Have a good Sunday.